Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 65.5, Dieting, Health, and Fat Talk with Harriet Brown. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. So what is the relationship between weight and health? Um, what, what is the reality? What does it mean to be healthy in terms of weight? Well, hello there, veggie lovers. It's not Sunday because this is a bonus episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I got so caught up on all of my episodes and everything is going on track, but then I had the opportunity to interview this fabulous author and we had such a wonderful conversation. If you've been following along, you know that this is part of my intuitive eating series. And so far we've talked about what intuitive eating is, talked about the co-creators, the two ladies that actually coined the term intuitive eating, heard from Elise Resch, one of the co-authors of intuitive eating. Also, you now know about health at every size and you've heard from Dr. Michelle May. Well, today you are going to hear a conversation I have with Harriet Brown. Now I learned about Harriet Brown because I read her book called Body of Truth and I just thought it was so good that I immediately found her online and messaged her to see if she would be available to be on my podcast. And she was very gracious and she agreed to be on here. And we just had a lovely conversation. And I just have to say, I have really enjoyed doing the monologues because it's pushing me out of my comfort zone and helping me learn a new way of doing and thinking and creating and sharing with you guys. And I think y'all have been enjoying them too. Continue to give me feedback. It really, really helps me. But I am going to say I love interviews. I love them because I'm not kidding you. I think almost every guest I have on the show, I fall in love with them and I just realize how many amazing people there are in the world, how many brilliant, compassionate, loving people that care so much about others, want to help others, want to teach others from their experiences, from what they've learned in life. And I'm just so touched. And Harriet is one of those special people. I just felt comfortable, comfortable with her from the very beginning. 
and I wanted to be her buddy, wanted to be her friend right away. So I feel like I'm so privileged that I get to do this and I get to interview these amazing people for free and what an honor it is. So in this episode, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about Harriet's own dieting history and why she became angry when a therapist asked her to consider accepting her body as it was. We talk about her own daughter's struggle with anorexia and how it's changed her whole paradigm. The physical and psychological consequences of dieting, the relationship between BMI or body mass index and mortality, the definition of fat talk and why we do it, weight stigma, sizeism and prejudice, how body weight is associated with feminism, and what Harriet wishes more people knew. I really can't wait for you to hear this interview, but let me tell you more about Harriet. So Harriet Brown is a professor of magazine journalism at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and a sought after speaker on college campuses around the country. She has written for the New York Times Science Section, the New York Times Magazine, O, Psychology Today, Scientific American, and other publications. Her most recent book is Shadow Daughter, a memoir of estrangement. She has also written Body of Truth, how science, history, and culture drive our obsession with weight and what we can do about it, and Brave Girl Eating, a family struggle with anorexia, which won a Books for a Better Life award. In 2011, she won the University of Iowa's John F. Murray Prize in Strategic Communications for the Public Good for her work as an advocate for those with eating disorders. She lives in upstate New York with her family. I can't wait for you guys to listen to this bonus episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. If this is your first time to listen to my podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, leave me a review, and also rate and share my podcast. I would really appreciate it. And if you aren't already signed up for my newsletter, there's two ways you can do it. You can get your phone out and text the word fiber, that's F-I-B as in boy, E-R, to the number 66866. Or you can go to my website, Dr. Yami, that's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash sign up. S-I-G-N-U-P, and you can get on my newsletter so that you can be the first to know about all the new episodes as well as any other news. And the good news is, as far as my book goes, it is going to the printer soon. So hopefully we will be getting that out in print in the next six to eight weeks. I'm so excited to get my hands on it. The cover is looking amazing, and I just really can't wait to share it with everybody. So veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here today. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I will catch you in just a few days on Sunday on our next regularly scheduled episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Enjoy. Welcome listeners. I am so excited to have Harriet Brown on the podcast today to talk about her book, Body of Truth, how science, history, and culture drive our obsession with weight 
and what we can do about it. Harriet, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. So I just want to ask you, why did you write this book? (laughs) Well, the truth is I didn't want to write this book in the beginning, um, but I was compelled to write it for a number of reasons. Um, Weight was always a big issue in my life growing up, um, and I think that's probably true for most women in America and definitely women of my generation. Um, And... I grew up really angsting about my weight and even obsessing about it. Um, But it didn't occur to me that there was anything wrong with that until my older daughter developed anorexia. Mm -hmm. And in watching her go through that and helping her recover, um, it kind of showed me, it, it, it radicalized me and it sort of showed me that these things that I had taken for granted for so long were not actually, uh, solid principles and it made me want to look into so what is the relationship between weight and health um what what is the reality what does it mean to be healthy in terms of weight um because during her recovery uh you know with someone who who has anorexia and whose um you know weight goes very low um she had to eat a lot of calories to recover for a very long period of time. So we often found ourselves in situations that were like counter to the cultural norms around weight. So, you know, one night we were at the grocery store and we were shopping for ice cream because part of her recovery was a daily milkshake. And we were looking for the ice creams that had the highest calories because eating was hard for her. So we were trying to get as much into a small volume as possible. And at some point, and this was pretty far along into her recovery, so which is why she was there with me and we were sort of joking about it. At some point, we became very aware that everyone around us was looking at us. And we said things like, no, that one only has 150 calories a half cup. We need, we need more than that. Okay, go look for... And like everyone else was there looking for the low calorie things. And it was like this moment of profound dislocation. And also... It, Um, a moment where I was like, I have to step outside of this paradigm, like this paradigm is false. Um, And so being a journalist, I started looking into, and being a science journalist, I started reading the research on weight and health, and was kind of shocked to see that it did not say what I thought it was going to say, what we all think it says, right, which is, you know, the thinner you are, the better, the fatter you are, the worse, you know, that fat will take a decade off your life, you know, like all of these truisms that um, get reinforced through media and through all sorts of channels, you know, turned out not to be supported in the actual research. So, um, so I wrote this book because really because I got tired of having this conversation with people and saying, well, wait, but no, if you look at this research, it says this. I'm like, I'm just going to write this book, put it all together and Yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm so glad you did. And I think it's true. I think we've all believed this paradigm for so long that if you say, well, that's not really true, people look at you like you have three eyes, like, what do you mean? We all know it's true that we should all be thinner and there's no such thing as being too thin. Um, And so it's just, it just kind of flies in the face of everything we believe. And so it must be hard, especially 
when your daughter was going through her eating disorder to try to counter that. And also probably for you too, because you grew up with it for so many decades. And I love how you opened the book that you went to a therapist Mm -hmm. and she said, what if you were okay with your body the way it is right now? And you got angry. You were like, what do you mean? Okay. Well, like I'm here because I'm not okay. And it's not okay. Don't you understand? So do you think that this is a common experience for people that even if they're told, listen, you're fine, you're okay, that they're going to have this backlash of anger and say, no, you're wrong. There's reasons why I should be thinner. Everything says it. I should be thinner. That's absolutely how people react. And, um, and I, you know, if you, you could read my email inbox and you would see a lot of that. I mean, I kind of thought I would write this book. I would lay out the research um, and people would be happy to hear it, but that's actually not what happened. I mean, some have been, but a lot of people got really mad. Um, a lot of people got very vitriolic about it, um, including a lot of doctors and medical professionals. Um, I've given, I've been invited to give talks in like, I was invited to give a talk in an endocrinology practice about this where like literally half the doctors got up and walked out. You know, and it was so puzzling to me at first, but then I thought back to my own experience. Why did I get so angry? You know, and I got so angry for a lot of reasons, one of which was um, I'd been so invested in this paradigm for so long. You know, I'd, I'd gone through at least three, like, major, major dieting. Oh, I would now call them restricting phases, you know, but they were diets, like Weight Watchers kind of thing where I had like devoted so much time and energy and, you know, pain and suffering to like this pursuit of weight loss. And three times I achieved this sort of pinnacle of success as I had been taught that it was, you know, at great personal cost to myself. And, you know, it's like, how dare you tell me that I didn't need to do that. <laughs> You're basically telling me I just wasted a lot of time and energy. I don't want to think that. So that's part of it. And then I think another part of it is just that, you know, you can personally sort of shift your beliefs around this and say, okay, you know, uh, I'm okay at the weight I am, but you're not going to get that message from the rest of the culture. You know, you're going to be at odds with the culture when you do that. Um, and it really doesn't matter what size you are. Um, it's the attitude that puts you at odds with the culture. So um, that's very painful. You know, human beings are social creatures. We want to fit in. We want to uh, have status. We want to be accepted, you know, and it's hard when you, you know, because the conclusion I had to come to was I'm not going to pursue weight loss anymore. I'm going to live in a larger body than what society is telling me I should be. And that's going to cause me some problems. I know that, you know, and I, you just have to accept that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's so hard because not only do we have the cultural messaging that we should be thinner, but we are saturated with media images. There's nowhere that you can go to escape it unless you live in a cave and have no <laughs> Wi-Fi. You know what I'm saying? So and now it's like social more media. More than ever. Yes, because I mean, it's not only just like it used to just be the images that were coming to us from media conglomerates, but now it's the images that come to you 
from your friends and family. Like I teach at a university and I talk with my students about, I have a lot of female students. And, you know, in one class I asked them like, you know, who in here has ever used like that kind of editing software to, to, to change your appearance on social media? Every hand went up and they looked at me like, I was nuts for even asking the question. Of course we have to do this, you know? And so it's like, it's, it is literally coming from everywhere inside yourself, your friends, your peers, your family often, and then all of the media that's out there. So, wow, you can't really escape it. Yeah. So how is this obsession with being thin harming us? Well, it's harming us in a lot of ways. I mean, physically it harms us because you know, we're used to thinking of like the pursuit of weight loss as benign, right? Like, okay, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but it's not going to hurt you. In fact, I've literally heard doctors say that, but that doesn't actually turn out to be true. Um, The, you know, dieting, restricting, whatever you want to call it, um, does have physical consequences for people. It, it shifts your metabolism. It, um, it, it has psychological effects. Um, It's, it's in some cases linked to disease. It's not necessarily a benign process. And so, so that's a problem. So you're, you're engaging in a behavior that can do harm sometimes. And it also, it is completely ineffective for 95% of people over the long term. Um, and the process of losing weight and regaining it and losing it and regaining it also has physical consequences, has health consequences, right? The, what we call weight cycling isn't a benign process either. So, you know, I think about the fact that I went through three major weight losses and then regain. Every time you're going to gain more weight because you're training your body um, to be anxious about, oh my God, not enough calories are coming in. So, you know, our metabolisms are pretty self-regulating. They become more efficient. They hold on to every calorie that comes in. So, that's one reason why a lot of people do wind up weighing more after they diet and regain the weight. But also that is associated with um, diseases like type two diabetes and, um, you know, cardiovascular stuff much more than being at a stable, but higher weight. So it's that act of bouncing around that, you know, and we don't exactly know why it creates inflammation. Maybe it raises cortisol levels. Like we don't really understand the mechanisms but we're looking at associations. So, so for those reasons, you know, it's ineffective. It's not good for your health and it also messes with your head. Right. I mean, sometimes I think like, wow, what could I have accomplished in my life if I wasn't like spending so much of my bandwidth thinking about, should I eat that rice cake? No, I shouldn't, but I'm so hungry. I can't focus on anything else. Okay. I'll have a, but you know, like that constant cycling of obsessive thinking, you know, I mean, I think there's a reason why this is, this affects mostly, but certainly not exclusively women, you know, that it's, I, you can't help but say, Hmm, it's also like a way to keep women busy with this. So they're not like doing other things. So they're not out in the world in other ways. I mean, it's hard not to think that way. I'm pretty cynical about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. As a veteran dieter who spent decades of life obsessing about my weight, depressed, unhappy, anxious, where I'm a very high functioning 
ambitious person, I really feel like I probably could accomplish a lot more and I've accomplished a lot. <laughs> so yes. it definitely, it, it sucks the life out of you, you know? Yeah. And I agree with that chatter. It's like a constant chatter. Even if we were to say really, okay, maybe the physical stuff is a wash. Maybe really it's not that unhealthy physically, but I agree that it probably does lead your body to develop efficiencies because that makes evolutionary sense that if you were in a part where you repeatedly had famines, your body's like, all right, well, we're just going to have to learn to be more efficient so we don't die and we can reproduce and continue the species. I mean, it makes complete sense, but we're coupling it with stress because dieting is stressful. You know, yeah. like you're just always anxious and you're like, I just don't want to go to a restaurant. Don't show me food. I don't want to be around anybody that's eating. And you're just like always anxious. And so you're coupling that with decreased caloric intake. To me, it makes complete sense that it's going to lead to the opposite problem. <laughs> you know, it's going to lead to more weight gain than to a weight loss, you know, and a sustainable weight loss. Yeah. And that's part of the picture too, right? That it's not that hard to lose weight in the short term. Mm -hmm. Most people can do it, um, but it's nearly impossible to keep it off in the long term, you know, and that's in part because our bodies are self-regulating and, you know, they, they, people come in different shapes and sizes, right? And it's, you know, very, very hard to sort of maintain against what your normal, like, I think it's relatively easy to shift your weight within your set point, like 10 pounds, one direction or another. For most people, not that hard to do, you know, but when you're talking about 30 pounds or more, that's putting you like in a different set point. And, you know, you're going against your biology, not just like one time, but like you have to continue to do it. So like, for example, I found, I mean, I'm, I have a friend who's exactly my height and, um, she, I probably outweigh her by about 50 pounds, you know, and she's perfect the way she is. She's tough. She's physically fit. She's happy. She eats plenty. She eats what she wants. She doesn't, you know, but that's just what her body does. Mm -hmm. When I was that weight, when I dieted to that weight, I was sick all the time. I was starving all the time. I couldn't think about anything else. You know, it was just not just not how my body's supposed to be. So, you know, sometimes I have like students will say to me, but I really want to be thin. I want to fit in that mode. And sometimes you just have to say, I'm sorry, but that's just not how you are. You know, like you have to accept that you're a different shape and size. Yeah. Or accept that if you do want to stay that thin, it's going to be like a full-time job. You know, you're going to have to be incredibly meticulous about it and probably really stressed, you know? And there so are consequences really to pleasant. that. Yeah. Yeah, so. there are consequences to that. You can't, like like you were saying earlier, you can't be around food. You can't, you know, you miss out on a lot socially when you don't feel comfortable enough to like go out to a meal with people when you're, you know, you're so stressed about it. So, so I think there's a lot of reasons why it's, so painful for us right now in this moment. Yeah. Well, let's talk about fat. <laughs> so, um, and you know, lots of different opinions about it, definitely in the medical community, but is fatness having body fat, even in what we would call an excess amount of body fat, whatever that means as harmful as we have been led to believe. There's no doubt that it's not. 
right? Because we've been led to believe that it's pretty much the devil itself, you know, <laughs> and that, um, and I mean, I think there was a faint, there was a statistic that was very, that was repeated a lot a few years ago that was something like, you know, uh, 400,000 deaths a year from, from obesity, you know, and obesity is a word I don't like to use even. I prefer fat, but that was the word they used, right? And, um, and that, you know, made a lot of media headlines and got a lot of attention. And as so often is the case, turned out to be just someone like speaking off the top of their head, you know, there was no evidence for that, right? So one of the conclusions I came to in looking at all the research so extensively um, is that health is very individual. So, you know, there are people for whom maybe carrying less weight would be better for their health in some way. The problem with that is we don't really know how to make people thinner permanently, So that, but that's a different problem. But it's also true that there's people for whom having more weight, again, whatever more means, um, is actually beneficial to health. So, you know, it's the so-called obesity paradox. Um, there are certain diseases and they include things like type 2 diabetes and, you know, heart failure, a lot of uh, cardiac stuff, um, kidney issues, you know, where outcomes are actually better for people who are in the, you know, overweight to mildly obese range on that BMI chart. Um, and especially people who don't lose weight, you know, whose weight stays stable. So I find it really interesting that we call it that, the obesity paradox, because it's as if someone was saying, my God, this is like, I, my king, my, it makes my head explode to think that fat could ever be beneficial in any situation, you know? So um, no, you know, we are, we are really taught to hate and fear fatness on every level. And that, you know, if you look at mortality rates, right? Like your risk of dying prematurely, um, and Catherine Flegel, who's an epidemiologist with the CDC, she was with the CDC for a long time. She's retired now. She's done a number of meta-analyses looking at what is the relationship between weight, BMI status, and mortality. And, you know, she ex like you would expect to see a, a linear progression, right? Like a, a line going straight up, like the fatter you are, you know, the, the higher your risk of dying prematurely that's not what she found. She found like a U-shaped curve where the risks are higher on either extreme end and they are lowest in that like, quote, overweight to mildly obese area. Hey humans, I know you wanna eat healthier but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients. Green Chef sends organic, fresh produce, and chef-designed recipes in every box for satisfying, nourishing, and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine. Find recipes for every lifestyle, including plant-based diets. Green Chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients, including low added sugar and sodium smart options. You get to choose from 80 plus flavor packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. 
Try 15 plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients, as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped and custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. They also provide their recipe cards, and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow, and everything you need is included, so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events. Hello, spring, and time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals to put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com forward slash human 50 and use code IAMHUMAN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash IAMHUMAN50 and use the code IAMHUMAN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman-owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a by women and for women company, and they now offer a nutrient-dense green powder called Daily Nutrigreens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutrigreens, and we loved it. The Daily Nutrigreens contain an immune antioxidant and detox blend, along with prebiotics, probiotics, and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients, such as B12, iron, iron, zinc, and selenium. The daily greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or your baked goods. The daily Nutri-Greens are vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the apple banana daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste. And I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink. Integrate it into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's daily Nutri-Greens, head to myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, that's D-R-Y-A-M-I, for 15% off Equilibria's daily Nutri-Greens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I, at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So, you know... It's so interesting to me that our belief system is so counter to the truth here. 
Yeah. And actually, it makes me think of even our just definition of overweight and obesity, because I think I was like in high school when they changed the definition, the mm -hmm. medical definition, because mm -hmm. it used to be like to 27, right? That's um, right. Women. And then it dropped to 25. Yes. And you know, what's ironic about this whole situation, because I was a dieting addict, is that it actually made me happy because then I was like, oh, okay, then I have another reason that I should lose weight, you know? Um, but a lot of people, especially younger people, don't know that that actually did, you know, like, we're not perfect about this. Like, we just kind of look at stuff and then we're like, okay, we're just going to move it down to 25 because that's what we think it should be. But these are kind of, in some ways, arbitrary numbers. So not to base your whole feeling of your own health on a number. Well, it's actually completely arbitrary. Yeah. Why did they change it? They, they shifted it down because they thought it would be easier for people to remember 25 than 27. And I have other cynical ideas about why it was moved, but it wasn't moved in response to some tr uh, evidence that they were seeing in the research, you know, saying, oh, look, you know, health problems really go up at this, you know, so people need to be thinner. No, it wasn't, had nothing to do with that. It's really, really hard not to be cynical about it when you also think about how much money there is to be made on, you know, the pursuit of thinness. I mean, everything from like bariatric surgeons, um, you know, dieting companies like Weight Watchers, um, you know, products that people buy. I mean, there's just something like $68 billion a year is spent on this pursuit of weight loss. Medications, big pharma, you know, so if you say suddenly, maybe we don't have to do that or maybe we don't have to do that to that level. Like there's a lot of money at stake. Yeah. And I think the last stat I saw was 77 billion. So it's gone oh, up wow. a few billion. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk about fat talk. And this is something that came up in your book too, with your daughter um, when she was younger, what is fat talk and why do we do it? Oh, fat talk is that thing we all do, especially women. I don't know if it's exclusively women, but it's like largely women. You know, when we get together and first of all, the first thing that someone says to you is, you look so good. Did you lose some weight? And then the second thing is you respond, oh, no, God, my thighs. They're, I'm like a whale. Like, oh, my God, no, but you, you look amazing. So we engage in this process of like running ourselves down, always around weight. Um and praising each other. And it's this fascinating thing, really, because most, when you ask people, why do you do that? Like, we seem to think it'll make us feel better, like, oh, to be self-deprecating, which is, after all, women are socialized to do that in a lot of different contexts. Um, but it actually doesn't make you feel any better. It makes you feel a lot worse about yourself. And why we do it, I think, you know, has something to do with the human need to, like, find our place in the hierarchy constantly, what we call social comparison. So, you know, we are constantly trying to figure out where do I belong in that hierarchy? And since thinness is such like a prime value in our culture, you know, we have to constantly be figuring out where am I on that spectrum? Where do I fall in the hierarchy? And what's really interesting about fat talk is that it's mostly done by thinner women. Mm. Right. So if you're actually fat, if you're considered, you know, if you have a body that would be considered fat, obese, whatever you want to call it in this culture, you probably don't engage in fat talk. You don't have the social capital to do it. You know, it only works if you aren't actually 
fat or perceived as fat. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. And the research shows it's really crappy for you. <laughs> you know, it's terrible for you. There's no way in which it's good for you. Um, you know, I remember my, my younger daughter, when I sort of, when she went through this phase in her teen years where she, I was starting to hear her say stuff like that. And I said to her, you, you can't talk like that. Like, that's not cool. That's not good for you. Whatever. She said, I have to talk like that, that, you know, if I, if I don't engage in that kind of talk, I won't have any friends. So it's become like this bonding ritual for women. And it's become a kind of not a rite of passage so much, but almost like a litmus test. Like, are you, you know, willing to engage in this? Like, and I think, I think I'm seeing a little shift now in the culture, but it's hard to tell. Um, you know, is it less of a sort of imperative for you younger women to like engage in this? I mean, when I was growing up in the seventies, oh my God, it's like all we did. It was constant and overwhelming. So I'd like to think there's progress being made, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, I only have sons. I don't have any daughters. My older son is 14, but I know that I've gone through my own journey with all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, when he was around six, I realized that my own self-deprecation was mm -hmm. teaching him to do that about himself. And I freaked out because there was some part of my twisted brain that thought I could only pass it on to girls Mm. not boys. Yeah. And, um, so when I saw that he started doing that, I was like, all right, I need to stop. And that's when I started going through my own journey, recovery and healing from all of this. But I have found it really hard, especially with friends and family members to learn not to comment on body size mm -hmm. because it, I grew up that way. That's why I started my issues is because I grew up with every time I went, I'm from Panama and I would spend every summer in Panama with my mm -hmm. grandparents. As soon as I stepped off the plane, I'm not kidding you. The first thing out of my family's mouth was whether I had gained weight or lost weight. I even had a friend once who argued with me and I was little, I was like 10 or 11. And she was like, you gained weight. And I was like, no, I didn't. She's like, yes, you definitely did. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I grew up with this in Panama. The culture is you comment on people's body size to yeah. their face and yeah. whether it's negative or positive, you do it. And so I feel like we're in a culture that we so value telling each other, oh my gosh, you've lost weight. Did you diet? What did you do? That I find it, I have to like bite my tongue mm -hmm. and not comment on people's body size because I realize that I don't want for them to only value that in me either. You know, like I want the value to be something else, not That's to be it. the size of our bodies, but it is hard, hard, hard. <laughs> it's so deeply ingrained. I mean, I mean, I, when I said I had been radicalized, that's really what I, it takes like a sort of radical retraining, you know, to sort of step away from that. It, it's become so reflexive and, you know, I've, I mean, I won't say called out friends, but I've definitely called it to their attention. Like, you know, can you not do that in front of me? Like, I find it very triggering at this point. I, could we just not make any comments about weight? Mm -hmm. That's all. Like, just, could we talk about something? First of all, it's boring. Who cares? It's like the most boring subject anywhere. And second of all, like, can we just, but it is, it's really hard not to do it, but it can be done. I'm here to say yes. that you can learn to not do it. And that's why I want to talk about this subject because mm -hmm. I feel like the more we make it okay to be like, you know, you don't have to discuss your weight. You don't have to discuss 
your size. You know, it's just not necessary. That's really important. And I can imagine for your daughter's journey, that was tough too, because when girls start to lose weight, they get so much validation. Oh my God. Even when they're just like emaciated. And I've seen that on social media where there's some times where I'm just like, cringe because the validation that people get when they lose weight and how that can really start impacting their psychological well-being, you know? Absolutely. I mean, the day she was diagnosed with anorexia, you know, she had to, she was in the pediatrician's office, had to get an EKG. We go down, she lays on the table, she opens up her shirt. And I mean, she was emaciated at that point. And the tech putting on the, the sticky things said to her, you're so nice and slim. How do you keep your figure? I was like, I, I, I couldn't even believe it. And I complained about it afterwards. And the tech and I wound up having a conversation about it. And what she said, to, she was very upset. And she said, I didn't mean any harm. I was just trying to be nice. And I know that she was, that was right. She was trying yeah. to be nice. But that's the only way, like even when you're looking at someone who's has anorexia and is, you know, suffering and is emaciated, you still think it's nice to comment on how thin they are. That's how deeply ingrained it is in this culture. Wow, that's shocking. That must have been so painful for you. Oh my gosh. Well, I still remember it 14 years later. So yeah. Wow. Well, let's shift gears a little bit because I want to address something that has also spurred from all of this, from from this change in paradigm. And it's sizeism. So one of the quotes I love from your book is prejudice of any kind comes from a place of fear in a culture where many fear fat more than they fear death or disease or bereavement. People feel free to voice the most vitriolic opinions on the issue of weight. And that's from chapter six. And I think that's just just really encompasses what we're going through in our culture. So can you comment a little bit about bias in our culture and how we view people that are larger or that may identify as fat? Um, As we've been discussing, you know, this notion that fatness is bad and fat in food, fat on bodies, you know, in whatever form it takes, it is so deeply ingrained in us. Um, and so weight stigma, um, I think the worst part of weight stigma, I mean, the worst part of any prejudice or bias is when it's internalized, I think, and when it lives so deeply within us that we apply it to ourselves as well as to other people. Um, and I would say that as a culture, we, we have a phobia about fat and that informs a lot of our social and cultural norms in ways that are really bad for us. For example, I've heard like I can't even endless numbers of stories of fatter people who go to the doctor for, I don't know, an ear infection or a sore throat and are told lose weight. That will fix it. You know, so much so that there are people who have uh, developed sort of checklists for how to deal with that, you know, and I, I've heard countless stories of people misdiagnosed. There are their medical issues attributed to their weight you know, when it turned out to be like a tumor or something or, you know, some, some major thing that should have been, there were many opportunities to catch along the way, but they weren't caught because all people were looking at was their weight. So, so that's one way in which weight stigma is a problem. We also know that, you know, fatter people in our culture, especially women, 
um, make less money, are hired less often, get promoted less often, um, you know, suffer economic consequences of that in a variety of ways. Um, there's really no way in which it's seen as an advantage, you know, at the very, the very best, it's seen as something to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, especially in the 90s, I think, and in the early 2000s, when there were a lot of public health campaigns, especially aimed at childhood obesity and Michelle Obama's whole, you know, I want to end childhood obesity within a decade kind of thing. Um you know, you have to think about what is that saying to the young, to the teenage girl or the child who's fatter than her, you know, who lives in a larger body than her peers. You're saying, I want to get rid of you. You know, you're so terrible. You're, it's so terrible what you are that I want to erase you. And so like any kind of prejudice or stigma, you know, it has devastating effects on people. And and the problem is we internalize it and then we carry that with us for the rest of our lives. And, you know, that's another thing that I became aware of when my daughter had anorexia, because suddenly the things that were coming out of her mouth about her own body, I realized they weren't that different from the things I had always thought about my own body, you know, and she was clearly very sick and, you know, just kind of like spewing this stuff, but it wasn't that different. And that was a profound realization for me, like, holy cow, I have been carrying this poison and this toxicity about myself around for all these years, and it, it's not helping me. It's hurt me in many ways. So, so yeah, weight stigma is a big, big problem. Yeah, and just kind of how we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation about cortisol and stress, because this really does dominate life for a lot of people. But when on top of it, you feel that you are being discriminated against, or you feel like there's bias against you, then that also creates stress and probably raises cortisol levels and can contribute to disease in itself, you know, and it probably wasn't the fat itself, but your mental processes that led to chemical changes within your body. So this is a real thing. And for my book, doing the research, I found that one third of women in one study had at some point avoided going to the doctor Mm -hmm. because of their weight. And that is a lot of people avoiding going to the doctor where diagnoses might be missed, delayed, and they could have an empathetic healthcare practitioner there to help them with whatever they're dealing and struggling with. So it is real. It's around us. And hopefully it's something that with awareness, we can start changing over time. But I wanted to talk too about the association between dieting and body weight and all of our struggles as females with this body weight thing and feminism. What is the link there? (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of the links is just that, uh, you know, I mean, as historically as women, we have been taught that our value comes from how we look. Right. So that's a huge thing. And there's like fancy sociological terms. We say that women have hedonic power, meaning that our power in the world comes from our appearance whereas men have agonic power, meaning their power in the world comes from what they do Mm. actively, their achievements, their accomplishments, whatever. Um, And so so I think this obsession with appearance 
has definitely been part of, you know, uh, women's cultural and social roles are, you know, and you could, however you want to put that. One thing that I think is really interesting is if you look at the history of like what is considered the ideal body type for a woman, like over the last 200 years in this country, what you notice is that every time women make some kind of big uh, political or social stride, the ideal body type becomes extremely restrictive. So, for example, you know, when women got the vote in 1920, the ideal body type went from being somewhat voluptuous to being the flapper, you know, this like stick straight, very boyish, very, very slim. Women bound their breasts because, you know, boyish was what you were supposed to have. In the 1960s, you know, when uh, the birth control pill and women started entering the workforce and women's lib was this big thing, who was the ideal model at the time was Twiggy, you know, so named because she looked like a twig. I mean, it's just really interesting to me and it's hard not to connect this, you know, it's hard not to see this sort of push toward making us smaller as part of a response to our being larger in the world, you know? And so that's another reason why I feel like fat is a feminist issue, as Susie Orbach famously wrote, although for different reasons than she said, and that, you know, part of it is about taking up space in the world and, uh, and having it be okay to, to think about and obsess about and devote your energies to something other than what your body looks like. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's just so fascinating because it's not something that I had ever connected or thought about until I started doing more reading on this issue. But mm -hmm. I really do see that link. And I think for women, especially for people like me, because I'm I'm one of those type A sort of people. And when I started making that link, I was just like, well, I'm not gonna be held down by this obsession anymore. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think if some people knew that, I think um, for some personality types, it might help them also embrace more of their natural size rather than trying to restrict them, themselves into this cultural ideal. What do you wish more people knew? Very broad question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, got, got an hour. I, will. <laughs> I, I wish more people knew that, um, that this obsession with thinness is is hurting us no matter who we are and no matter what size we are, because, um, you know, one of the interesting things about weight stigma is that it, it doesn't just affect people who are considered fatter. It also affects people who are thinner mm -hmm. um, because the fear, right. Of becoming fat really um, can become an obsession for, and I mean, I teach, college age women and I teach a fat a, a class called fat and feminism where we talk about this stuff and usually almost everyone in the class is pretty thin and it's astonishing to me the amount of anxiety and fear and obsessive behavior that comes out around this issue from them and I mean they're all like like skinny you know what would be considered skinny so um so I wish people knew that this was really bad for us. I wish they knew that, um, you know, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, social determinants of health. So when you are in a stigmatized condition, 
um, whether it's because of the color of your skin or your sexual orientation or the size of your body, that is far worse for your health than being quote unquote fat. You know, that, that, um, that it's perfectly possible to be fat and healthy, you know, and I, finally, I wish people knew that health was more a function of your health, your behaviors than your body size. Right. So you can be thin and you can look like you're, you know, hitting all the BMI targets and everything. And, you know, maybe it's cause you smoke or maybe, and maybe you eat a lot of junk food and never exercise and that's just your body type. Um, whereas, you know, you can be fatter and exercise and eat well, and that will show up in your health. You know, so these assumptions that we make, these knee jerk assumptions that we make are just not true. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Well, I want to wrap up a little bit. So I'd like to ask you the question I ask all my guests, which is what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? You know, that's such an interesting question because um, I'm not sure I'm proud of any personal habits, really, like proud. I, I don't think of that, but, um, you know, a habit that I'm happy about, maybe, let's say, is that um, a few years ago, I, I discovered or rediscovered mindfulness and began to um, irregularly, sometimes regularly at other times, began to meditate. And that has been a great gift for me. And it's not like I'm not a person who's going to spend a week, a weekend meditating. You know, I might meditate for 20 minutes. Some days it's just 10 minutes, but it's incredibly helpful to me. I'm a person who has some anxiety issues. Um, It's just, I don't know. I just feel so much more connected and so much calmer. So uh, that's a habit I'm happy about. How about that? (laughs) I love it. No. And I think you make a very important point when it comes to any of these habits sometimes we do go for this like all or nothing mentality that i'm going to meditate for an hour a day or not meditate at all Type a. as you have found even just a few minutes a day has made a big difference for you and i find the same thing with meditation when i'm on my practice i've i've taught myself that it doesn't have to be a full 30 minutes even if i can just get 5 to 10 minutes in it mm-hmm. makes it big difference for my mental health. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. And how can listeners connect with you? Um, Well, they can connect with me through my website, which is harrietbrown.com. And there's an email, there's a place where you can contact me through there. And I'm on social media under the name Harriet Brown. You can find me pretty easily. Um, Although there is a hip hop musician of the same name, interestingly, (laughs) <laughs> That's not me. I kind of wish it was, but it's not. <laughs> That's and, funny. Um, yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm easy to find and uh, I enjoy engaging with people. Awesome. Any more books planned for the future? Oh yeah. I'm definitely working on uh, a couple of new projects. Um, I had a book come out last year about family estrangement called Shadow Daughter. And I am now working on a book about uh, cannabis and medically fragile kids. Ooh, totally different topic. <laughs> yeah, you <Wow>. know, <laughs> you, you get a lot of flack when you write about weight. So uh, sometimes you need a break. Maybe the cannabis one will be super popular and everybody will love it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, this is a great, great time for a book like that. So congratulations. 
Well, Harriet, thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you and I so loved your book. So thank you for taking the time and dedicating part of your life to writing such an important book. Oh, thanks for talking about, you know, it's so fun for me to talk to people about it. Um, that's why I wrote it, you know, so we could have these kinds of conversations. So thanks for the work you do. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I hope that you have a plantastic day. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.